want you to take a Bible now and let's open it together to 1 Samuel chapter 26. We're going to be continuing in our ongoing study of the life of the great man of God, David. And if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, we'd like to invite you to borrow our copy of the Bible. It's right on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 210, page 210 to begin this morning, or 1 Samuel chapter 26 in your copy of the Bible. Now today we want to talk about opportunities. And so I thought, well, it would be a good idea to make sure we all are talking about the same thing, to look it up in the dictionary. So I did, and here's what it said. It said, an opportunity is a combination of circumstances that creates a great chance, a fortunate possibility, or a lucky break. And you know, as I look back on my life, I mean, clearly there are some opportunities I am really glad uh, that I took. For example, I'm really glad that I took the opportunity to marry my wife, Brenda. I mean, she had a moment of temporary insanity and said yes, and I said, that's it, and I never let her back off, okay? I'm really glad I took the opportunity to attend the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Uh, God changed my life there. I met Jesus Christ there. It was a life-defining choice for me. I'm really glad I took uh, the opportunity 17 and a half years ago to come to McLean Bible Church. And uh, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. That's kind of you, but don't do that. And I'll bet, I'll bet that you're, and believe me, there were days nobody clapped. So that's all right, too. (laughs) But I'll bet that you can think back in your life on some opportunities where, um, that you're really glad you took. By the same token, I can think back in my life on some opportunities I'm really sad I took. Like there was that opportunity to buy silver at $35 an ounce that I took that I'm really sad about. There was the opportunity to purchase that high-top conversion van that my family and I I affectionately refer to as the black hole that I'm really sad I took. Then there was that opportunity to tell the dentist that I hated shots, so just to go ahead and drill without the Novocaine, I took that opportunity. Now, that was one I was really sad I took. And um, But in our passage for today, our friend David is handed a golden opportunity, but it's an opportunity that he doesn't take. He weighs it, and he decides, even though it is a golden opportunity, he's not going to do it. And I want to talk to us today about this very issue. As a Christian, when an opportunity comes across your path, how do you decide which opportunities you take and which opportunities you don't? Are there any principles for us to use in making those decisions so that we don't make bad choices? Well, I want to talk to you about that today. First, let's look at the story from David's life, and then we'll talk into uh, about a little bit about our lives. First Samuel 26. Now, remember the background. Saul has been chasing David for months and months, trying to kill him. And David and his 600 armed men are living down in the southern desert part of Israel as fugitives hiding out from Saul. Saul, verse 1 tells us, gets some new uh, uh, information, some new intelligence data. And so he heads out to go after David again with 3,000 men and he sets up camp, verse 5. And then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. And he saw where Saul and Abner, Abner was the commander of Saul's army, he saw where Saul and Abner had laid down, and Saul was lying inside the camp with his whole army encamped around him. 
And so they went to bed at night, Saul and all of his men, and David recruited his cousin, a fellow named Abishai, one of his army commanders. And verse 7 says, David and Abishai went to, uh, to, uh, to the army by night, and there was Saul lying inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground right near his head. And Abner and the soldiers were lying all around him. Now you understand what's happening here. David, like a commando, sneaks into this camp and gets within three or four feet of King Saul who's fast asleep on the ground. You say, well, Lon, how could that happen? I mean, where were the sentries? I mean, who's on watch here? What's going on? What kind of army is this? Well, verse 12 tells us that God had caused a deep sleep to fall on all the soldiers, and that's how David was able to get this close. God had sent an angel, and he had given spiritual Tylenol PM to everybody, and they were out cold. Now, verse 8, Abishai, David's cousin, turns to him and says, David, cuz God has handed you a wonderful opportunity, a golden opportunity here. Verse 8, he says, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear, Abishai said. I won't strike him twice. I won't have to hit him twice. I'll get it done the first time. I'll do the dirty work for you. I'll run my spear through him and into the ground like a pin through a pin cushion. If you'll just let me do it, David. He said, but wait a minute, I thought David once before has already made the decision that he's going to spare Saul's life and not going to kill him. Well, you're right, but this is a little different. You say, how? Well, it's different, first of all, in that Saul has proven that he's incorrigible. By that I mean, David showed him mercy, Saul said that he would never do it again, and now he's right back chasing David just like he swore he'd never do. The mercy approach didn't work, and, and no amount of mercy he shows Saul is going to make any difference. Saul has made that clear. Showing him mercy one more time is not going to change anything. It's also different because now David has a chance not only to kill Saul, but to kill Abner. And what we find out from later in the Bible is that Abner, the commanding general of Saul, was as much the, the, the piston behind Saul's hatred of David as anybody, even after Saul dies. Abner takes his remaining son and elevates him to king and supports him and fights for him as David's rival. And so Abner was a main part of keeping this whole enmity going between Saul's camp and David's camp. And now David has a chance not only to kill Saul, but to kill Abner too, before because Abner's sleep right there, and put this whole thing to rest and take over. Well... David didn't take the opportunity, even though Abishai was right. It was a golden opportunity. David, instead of seizing the opportunity just because it was there, he waited and he said, no, I'm not going to do it. Look at verse 9. David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Abishai, you know that. As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike Saul. Either his time will come and he'll die of natural causes, or he'll go into battle and he'll perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. So now get his spear and get the water jug that's right near his head and let's go. So David took Saul's spear and he took Saul's water jug, his canteen, from right over next to his head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Now, I love what David does next. I love this. Verse 13. And then David crossed over the other side of this little ravine, got to put a safe distance between him and Saul. And then he stood on the hill and he began to scream, Hey, Abner! And Abner woke up, said, Who is it? 
And David said to him, verse 15, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in all Israel? Why didn't you guard your Lord the King? Someone came to destroy your Lord the King. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men deserve to die. Because you didn't guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around, Jabner. Where's the king's spear? Where's his water jug that was sitting next to his head? Look over here, Abner. I got him. I was right there. I went right through your security and I was standing right next to your king. Now, folks, this is Bible trash talk that's going on here. I mean, he is taunting this guy. He's going, yeah, some great general you are, man. I got all the way up to your king. You know, I would really trust you to be the head of my secret service unit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yuck, yuck, yuck. This is hysterical. Now, it's Bible humor. That's why you don't get it. But it is hysterical what he's doing here. He's just taunting the guy in the NFL. He'd get a penalty for doing this. This is amazing. Well, anyway, you'll get it later. But let's go on. Let me summarize the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter is Saul gets up. He says, oh, I feel terrible. David, you've spared my life again. I'll never hunt you again. I'll never harm you again. Please, the same speech he gave him the last time David spared his life. And he invites David to come on back to town with him and let's be buddies again. Now, David's not completely stupid. David says, no, I don't think so, Saul. You go on home if you want to. I'll stay right on down here in southern Israel, which is what he did. So Saul went home and David stayed there. That's the end of the chapter. But, of course, we've got a question that we need to ask. The really important question, and you know what the question is. What is it? So what? Right. So what? Now, folks, here was an opportunity that David had that he didn't take. Isn't it interesting? He had the opportunity to kill Goliath, and he took that one. But here he's got the opportunity to kill Saul and Abner, and he doesn't take that one. So how did David distinguish, and how do you and I as Christians distinguish when we take an opportunity and when we don't? You know, Abishai was right. This was a golden opportunity, but it was one that David said, I'm not going to take. How do we make those decisions? I was talking to my sons not too long ago, and I said, you know, guys, as I've grown older, I've come to understand something that I never understood when I was younger. And that is that when you're a teenager, when you're young, you have a tendency to think that the opportunities before you are going to be there forever. That if you turn them down now, they'll be back next year. If you turn them down next year, they'll be back the next year. That they have unlimited duration, that you've got unlimited chances to take them. I said, but guys, I want to tell you something. In my life, I have learned that there are some opportunities that don't last forever. They only come around once. Excuse me. And if you don't grab them right then when you've got the chance, they are never coming back again. So I want you guys to be grabbers of opportunity. When God brings something along and you believe God wants you to grab it, you grab that thing because a lot of them are not coming back again if you say no. And may I just take a break here and say that if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you've been thinking about it, you've been kind of toying with it, but you've never done it, then I want to say to you in the same way I said to my own sons, be careful that you don't assume that that opportunity is always going to be there. It isn't. I mean, I saw a bumper sticker the other day that I loved. It said some people who plan to turn to God in the 11th hour die at 1030. And there's a lot of truth to that. You don't have any guarantee and neither do I that that opportunity is always going to be there. There are people who die just like this and don't have a deathbed opportunity to make a decision for God. And so if you've been uh, thinking about this and contemplating this, I would like to urge you to take the advice I gave my sons and take the advice of the Bible where the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the appointed time. Don't put it off. Well, something to think about. Anyway, back to the conversation about my, with my sons. 
uh, we were talking and one of my boys said to me, well, he said, Dad, what I need to know is, uh, that's fine, but how do you know which opportunities to take and how do you know which opportunities not to take? Well, that's a good question. So I've got five principles that I want to give you that you can use to help decide as a Christian when do you take an opportunity and when you don't. All right, ready? Now, for the first one, I want you to turn to Psalm 119. It's page 439, if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 439, Psalm 119. And here's the first principle. Is match up that opportunity against the truth of the Word of God. Match that opportunity up against the truth of the Word of God. Look what David says right here in Psalm 119. Look at verse 105. He says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Look at verse 130. He says, The unfolding of your Word gives light... It gives understanding to the simple. In verse 24, David says that the Word of God is his counselor. It's his advisor. And if you look back in verse 9, look what he says in verse 9. He says, how can a young person keep their way clean, keep their way right, keep their way pure? Well, by living according to God's Word. Verse 11, I have hidden your Word in my heart, David says, that I might not sin against you. That when it comes to the opportunities before me, I might make good choices in those opportunities, and that I might not make the bad choices that represent sin before you, God. Folks, the very best way I know to evaluate an opportunity as a Christian is to compare that opportunity to the teachings of the Word of God and see how it stacks up. And if accepting some opportunity means that you've got to violate some principle or some command in the Word of God in order to accept that opportunity, then I want to tell you that you do not need a single one of the other four principles I'm going to share with you today. You've got enough information right there to know you are about to make a disastrous choice and you need to say right then and there, no, I'm not taking this opportunity because there is no opportunity that violates the Word of God that can ever turn out to be anything but disaster. You see, if David had followed this principle, the disaster with Bathsheba that came into his life never would have happened because there was a Bible verse, part of the Ten Commandments, that said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And if he would have taken that opportunity when he saw that woman on the roof and laid it up against the Ten Commandments and said, Nope, can't do this, just think how much easier that man's life would have been. If Samson had followed this principle, the disaster with Delilah never would have happened to him. If Lot had followed this principle, the the disaster at Sodom and Gomorrah would never have happened to him. And I want to tell you, if I had followed this principle better in my 27 years of being a Christian, a lot of the disastrous choices I've made, I never would have made. You say, but Lon, the Bible doesn't speak to every issue in life. I mean, there are some opportunities that come along where the Bible's just silent. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us what job to take, what car to buy, what house to purchase, what career to select, what college to go to, how to deal with aging parents, or any of that stuff. Well, you're right. You're right. And so that's why I've got four more principles for you. But I want to make sure you understand principle number one is see how it stacks up with the Bible. And if you're going to have to violate the Bible to take that opportunity, you don't need any more principles, friends. You got all the answer you need. Principle number two. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 3, if you would, with me, and I'll show you principle number 2. Just the next book in the Bible, page 450, if you're using our copy of the Bible. Proverbs chapter 3. And here is the second principle. Saturate the opportunity in prayer. 
You take that opportunity, if you want to make a good decision, and you saturate it in prayer. Look at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, with every opportunity that comes along, acknowledge Him. And He, as a result will tell you which path to take to keep you from a disaster. He'll make your path straight. Now, friends, in, in, in response to acknowledging God in all of our opportunities, which means that we take that opportunity and we, that decision, that choice, and we bring it to God in prayer, and we submit it to God in prayer, and we go over it with God in prayer, God says in response to that, He will guide us into making good decisions. And I hope as a Christian you've learned, as I have, that the best decisions are always prayerful decisions. You say, Lon, why? Because, friends, praying over an opportunity means that we invite God into that opportunity and we invite God to give us direction. We invite God to intervene and show us which way He wants us to go. And God promises He'll do that if we'll just give Him the chance. You say, Lon, you mean to tell me That you honestly believe that God, I mean Almighty God, intervenes in things like what car to buy, what house to purchase, you know, where to go to college, and shows people where to go and what to do? Oh, absolutely. Don't you? Absolutely. One of the greatest examples of this recently came in the life of my oldest son, Jamie, who, as you know, is a student at the Naval Academy, a third-year student, and so they've got a big prom coming up. And, uh, you know, it's called ring dance, and they, you know, they, they have to ask some gal to come down, or if you're a gal, you ask some guy to come down and go to ring dance. Well, now, my son Jamie does not have a steady girlfriend, because he decided in college, he wanted to devote himself to college, and so he decided not to have a steady girlfriend. And, and I voted for that, although I wasn't asked to vote, but I voted for that. I said, I think that's a great idea, wonderful idea. So, uh, you know, he's got to invite, he doesn't have a steady girlfriend to invite, he's got to invite somebody. And so we had a, a, a group of gals that he was thinking about who he might invite. And uh, Brenda and I kept saying to him, well, you know, you, I mean, you know, you need to get on with this here. I mean, girls like more than a week and a half notice they're going to a prom. You need to invite somebody. And he kept saying, Mom and Dad, I'm praying about it. I'm praying about it. I kept saying, Jamie, that's wonderful that you're praying about it, son, but you've got to invite some girl to this thing. Sooner or later, you've got to invite some girl. And so, uh, uh, you know, he said, I'm praying about it. I said, all right, all right, all right. So he called a couple weeks ago and he said, I made a decision. I invited this girl from California. I met at Hume Lake Christian Camp out there and she's coming. And he was so excited about it and he, he was so forceful about it that it caught me a little off, off guard because for so long it had been like ready, aim, 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 that when he fired, I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. How, how did you make this decision? He said, here's what I did. He said, you know, I told you I was praying about it. I said, yeah. He said, well, I was praying and I began thinking this girl from California is who I'd like to invite. He said, but she hadn't written me and she hadn't hadn't emailed me in over a month. So he said, I prayed. And he said, one day I got on my knees and I said, now, God, if this is the girl you really want me to ask, then let me get either a letter or an email from her in the next day or so. And I'll know that you're confirming in my mind, this is who you want me to invite. He said, I got up later that evening, went over to my computer, turned it on to start my homework. And there was an email that had just come in from this girl in California. He said, that's all I needed to know. Called her up on telephone. Boom, she's coming. You say, Lon, that's just a coincidence. That's not God. That's just a coincidence. Well, you can believe that if you want. But I've taught my children that there are no coincidences in life, friends. I've taught my children that a supernatural, almighty God will intervene in their lives and will help them make good choices if they'll just give God the chance to do it. 
And I believe that was God intervening. That was no coincidence. And, and I want to tell you, God, in the very same way, will intervene in your life and He will help you make good choices with the opportunities that you have if you'll only slow down long enough to give Him the chance. If you'll only take the opportunity and lay it in front of God and acknowledge Him and give Him space, He'll do the same thing for you. We're in such a hurry, though, we never give God space. Principle number three is to think through the consequences that we might be bringing on ourselves before we do something. Now, I love what Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says. It says, whatever a person sows, that's exactly what they're going to reap. This is God's way of saying that every action has consequences and that we need to be careful to think through those consequences before we act not afterwards. Most of us are wonderful at thinking through the consequences after we've done it. And we sit there and we go, oh my goodness, how did I get myself into this mess? Well, I mean, you know, it's good to learn for next time, but it's a much wiser thing to think through before you do stuff. And I might add, this is another good reason to saturate decisions in prayer, because when you do that, it makes you slow down. And when you slow down and you're not making every decision on impulse, When you slow down and you've got time to think through the consequences, you and God together, you'll make a lot better decisions. A couple summers ago, my family and I were down at the beach with our good friends, the Langleys, Gordy and Sue and their family. And one afternoon, Gordy and I took the guys out to go play golf down there. So we go out to this golf course and it's it's not a real long course, but it's a nice course. And so we go out there and it's uh, we're, we're, we're playing and we got behind the slowest foursome on record in the history of golf. I mean, these people were so slow that we would even lose balls and go look for them. And then we still got to the tee. They still had to sit and wait. And this was driving me crazy. And about the fourth or fifth hole, I was I was like, I was ready to have a stroke. I mean, I just got to tell you, that's how bad it was. I was like, you know, they'd hit and they'd yap and they'd yap and they'd yap and they'd hit and they'd yap. And when they hit, it didn't go anywhere anyway. So they'd walk up and hit and they'd yap. It was driving me crazy. So we got to about the fourth or fifth tee as a par four hole. And they were on the green and they were putting and yapping and putting and yapping and putting and yapping. And finally, I said, all right, all right, all right. And I said to my 15 year old son, Justin, I said, Justin, go on up there and hit your drive and send these people a message that they need to just kind of get on with it, you know. So Justin goes up there and I figured, well, he'd hit the ball and it would land in a fairway kind of close to the green and they'd get the message. Well, we had just seen the movie Happy Gilmore the night before. So Justin gets up there and he's got visions of Happy Gilmore in his mind. And he gets up there and he hits this monster drive like I've never seen him hit ever. And this thing takes off and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh. And this ball flies the green, goes over the green, whizzes over their head. All we see, all four people on the green go prostrate on the green as this ball goes over. And then they get up and they got putters and they're shaking their putters. And screaming up the golf course at us. Not one of my best decisions. So when I told my wife um, about this, she said to me, Oh, and so I figure on the next tee, you just went up and shared the Lord with these people, didn't you? I said, No, no, I, I, no, no, I didn't do that. And she goes on, Why don't you think? Well, what is wrong with you? How can I teach these children to think when their father doesn't even think? I mean, I could record this and just play the cassette a couple times a week in my house. Not a great decision. You know, Brenda's right. 
you know, uh, we do need to think before we do stuff, friends. And, and this is a good principle for us to remember. Slow down long enough to think, what could this mean before I you do it? Principle number four. Principle number four is get some advice from godly people who love you. Proverbs 16, verse 2, if you'll flip over there. It's just a couple of pages, a couple chapters back. Flip over to Proverbs 16, and I'll show you what the problem is and why I say this. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2, here's what it says. It says, all of a person's ways, a man or a woman's ways, seem right to them, seem innocent or correct to them. What this means is there are lots of opportunities that come along that look great to us when we're all by ourselves. We sit around, we look at them, we get a real quick sense of peace from God that we want to do this. And and frankly, the reason we get a real quick sense of peace from God is that this is something, frankly, that we're dying to do. You know, I have found I have this amazing capacity to whoop up a sense of peace from God about something I really want to do. And later I find out God had absolutely nothing to do with it. So, and that's the dangerous thing, is that left to ourselves, all by ourselves, we have this amazing capacity to convince ourselves this opportunity is from God. That's why it says in Proverbs 19, verse 20, listen to advice and accept input, and in the end, it'll help you to be wise. What the Bible is telling us is that because of this tendency we all have to be convinced we're right, we need other people to come along and go, yeah, but have you thought about this and have you thought about that and what about this? And for this reason and that reason, I don't think this is a good idea for you. So if you've got a great opportunity that you're facing, let me ask you a question. What does your wife think about it? Say, well, I didn't ask her. Well, I think that's a real problem. What are your close Christian friends that you go to and ask for them to talk and give you advice and counsel? What do they think about it? Say, well, I don't have any close Christian friends that I go to and talk like to, to like that. Well, no wonder you make such bad decisions then. You need friends like this in your life. And I'm not saying, friends, that we should decide whether we take one opportunity or another completely, solely, on whether our friends or our husband or our wife says that we, they think we should. I believe there are times when God speaks to us and we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we need to do X when everybody else is telling us to do Y. I believe there are those times. You know, 17 and a half years ago when I was thinking about coming to McLean Bible Church, I had a pastor friend call me up at home. I'll never forget it. He called me up and said, hey, Lon, I hear you think about going over to McLean Bible Church. I said, yes, I am. He said, that's the biggest mistake of your whole life. He said, I wouldn't touch that church with a 10 foot pole. I'll never forget him saying that. I asked some other people what they thought. Nobody thought it was a good idea for me to come here. But I knew. See, I knew in my spirit. I knew. God was asking me to come here and I went against all of their advice, not because I didn't listen to it and weigh it, but I knew God wanted me here. I knew that. And there will be times like that in your life. But to make those kind of decisions before you get input, before you get advice, man, that is dangerous, dangerous decision making. And that's why I love my staff. I've got a wonderful staff team and we don't do anything here. I don't make a single decision here unless I go to my staff and say, what do you guys think about this? And my staff know they have the absolute right with total impunity to say to me, Lon, that is the dumbest idea I have ever heard in my entire life. Because I'm just not interested in in making decisions. I'm interested in making good decisions. And to do that, you need people around you who see your blind spots and can give you the advice that you can't give yourself. Principle number five, and finally, 
In order to take this opportunity, here's the principle, do I have to exceed? Do I have to go outside of the boundaries that I've set for myself before God? If you do, the answer is don't do it. Don't take that opportunity. You say, Lon, what are you talking about? Friends, I believe that every smart Christian sets up boundaries for his or her life. Meaning that every smart Christian looks at their life, looks at the areas of their life where they know they're particularly weak, particularly vulnerable, particularly compulsive, particularly dangerous to themselves. And before God, prayerfully, they set up boundaries around these areas of their life to protect themselves from themselves. I mean, there are some Christians who set up financial boundaries because they have problems with spending and problems with debt. Now, Brenda and I are this way. We have a boundary that we don't purchase anything over $100 unless we go home and sleep on it because Brenda and I both know how compulsive I am. So this is why we do this. And it's helped us uh, to avoid a lot of bad decisions. Some Christians set up time use boundaries. They know they're, they're workaholics. They know they're compulsive on the Internet. So they set up boundaries about how much time they're going to spend at work each week. Some Christians set up travel restriction boundaries. They know they'd be on the road and away from their family all the time. So they set up boundaries and they say, no, I'm not going to be away more than a certain amount of time a month. Some Christians set up calorie boundaries. I have some of those. In fact, I have a four donut a week boundary in my life. I only do four a week. Now, I can do them in any order and in any day I want. I can do four on one day if I want or three on one day and one on another day, but it's my boundary and I got to set it up or I would look like an elephant. Other people have other boundaries. They, they have boundaries on what they read, what they buy in the movie store, what movies they go to watch, whether they drink alcoholic beverages, whether they gamble. You say, Lon, I don't have any boundaries like this set up in my Christian life. Well, friend, then you need to get some. You need to get some. And if you don't know how to do that, we offer a seminar here a couple times a year called Boundaries. And we'll talk to you about how to do this. And we'll help you get some principles to set up boundaries in your life. But you need them. A Christian without boundaries is like a a hand grenade with the pin pulled out just waiting to go off. You're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. Now, then when some opportunity comes along that looks so inviting, but in order to take advantage of it, you and I have to bust those boundaries that we set up thoughtfully and prayerfully before God. I say to you, you don't take the opportunity. You let it go and you stick with the boundaries. You uphold the boundaries that God has led you to establish for your life, for your own protection. For example... If you have a boundary that says you're not going to go into any more debt in your life, and yet you got the opportunity to buy this great luxury sports car that you've been dreaming about your whole life, but to buy it, you got to go borrow money, I say you don't buy it. You stick with that boundary you set up for your life. If you've got a boundary that says that you don't gamble because you know you're a little compulsive and you could lose a lot of money, and then you get an opportunity for a free trip to Las Vegas, you don't take it. If you've got a boundary in your life that says, I don't drink alcoholic beverages because I know this would just get me in trouble, and somebody offers you a free ticket to the Napa Valley Wine Tasting Festival, you don't go. If you've got a donut boundary like I got and somebody offers you the opportunity to work at Krispy Kreme, you don't take it. And I'll tell you, I got a great opportunity offered to me a week or so ago to come to this banquet for this wonderful Christian organization here in Washington. It's a great honor and offer the invocation prayer. Great opportunity. And I said, no, I'm not going. 
My wife said, why? Why wouldn't you go and take this opportunity? I said, it's very simple. My son Justin has a varsity baseball game for high school that night, and I have a boundary around my life. That if my children have an, act, an athletic activity and I'm in town, that is my boundary. I go to their athletic activity. I don't go speak at some Christian event or do something else. And I stick with that boundary. And I, and I wouldn't bust the boundary to go to that banquet. Banquets come and go. I only have my children once, and that's a boundary I've set on my life. And you know, friends, I could be out every night of the week doing stuff, 52 weeks a year if I wanted to. But, and so could you. But we've got to have some boundaries on our life. And they will help you make good choices about the opportunities that come your way. So here are our five principles. Number one. Take an opportunity and match it up against the truth of the Word of God. And if it violates the truth of the Word of God, you don't need to go any farther. You say no. Principle number two. Saturate that opportunity in prayer and give God some chance to intervene and show you which way He wants you to go. Principle number three. Think through the consequences of your action before you tell the kid to hit the golf ball. Principle number four. Get advice from godly people who love you because left to yourself, you can whomp up a sense of peace about almost anything if you want to do it. And principle number five is take only those opportunities that let you stay within the boundaries that prayerfully and thoughtfully God and you have set up for your life. You know, I have a top ten list of the top ten worst decisions I've ever made in my Christian life. And I, I shared a couple of them with you early on in this message. I got to tell you, I got to thinking this week, if I had used these five principles, I would not have made a single one of those ten decisions that were total disasters in our life. I wouldn't have made a single one of them. Because if I'd have run them through these five principles, not a one of them would have gotten through and I wouldn't have done them. And you know, I can't go back and change the past and neither can you. But there's some other alligators up there just waiting to bite your leg off if you step on them. And one of the ways to keep from stepping on them is to use these principles and only do an opportunity, only take it if it gets all the way through all five of these. Then you think about taking it. But if it doesn't make it, you let it go, my friend. And you assume that opportunity is an alligator and you thank God for helping you keep your leg on. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for speaking to us today about real life, down-to-earth, practical issues that we all deal with. Thank you for giving us some everyday principles that work to help us evaluate what opportunities as Christians we take and which ones we don't. And God, I pray that you would change the life of every one of us here because of what we've heard today. And I pray that you would insulate and protect us from making really lousy choices because of the principles we've learned here today. Help us use these principles, God, for our benefit and the benefit of our families and everybody around us, and help us use them for your glory in our lives. And Father, now I pray that you would dismiss your people with the great blessing that you gave Aaron for the people of Israel. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you. May He be gracious to you. May the Lord turn not His back, but His face towards you. And may He give you peace. Do this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Messiah, we pray.